All right. Hello, everyone. This is episode 54 of Get Your Tech On, our show on all things Doxis. I'm Brady Volp, founder of the Volp Firm and Nimble This. With us today is John Downey, CMTS, technical leader at Cisco Systems. Welcome back, John. Good. Why, you didn't, couldn't think of a tagline for me? <laughs> well, we think of many taglines, but some of them are rather derogatory. <laughs> The Saint Nick of uh, networking. There you go, yeah. <laughs> so, sorry, this is our last show of the decade. And uh, so, John, where are, you, where are you at today? Of the decade? Wow. Yeah, hey, I thought you were going to say of the year. Yeah, I guess it is the end of the decade, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Uh, so it I'm is. in Atlanta right now at our Lawrenceville facility, you know, the original uh, scientific Atlanta facility here in Lawrenceville, uh, doing some DOCSIS 3.1 testing end-of-year meetings, stuff, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, the 3-1 upstream is starting to starting to get some legs under it. Um, you know, many people don't have spectrum for more upstream, but if you're going to do 3-1 downstream and you have the hardware, why not start trialing 3-1 upstream um, kind of just to make sure things are going to work when you really need to turn it on and get more capacity. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So... Today, our topic is the Doxis revolution, and uh, you know our goal is to talk about pretty much the last twenty years of Doxis and take us into the next decade. Uh, but first, we have uh, we have some news, and we also have some uh, some details from from watchers or questions for watching. So first, Jason writes, "Hi there, uh, I watch the videos when I get a chance, but never live because I'm always working. So a lot of us can appreciate that." Uh, I was watching some on my Xbox today with my two and one year old daughters. I should have taken a picture. I forgot which week it was, but a viewer had a question about how he wasn't getting speeds. A tech came out and swapped his Doxis 3.1 modem for a doc, for, an, for a company 3.1 modem. Then he couldn't access his levels. So uh, we covered this question, John, when you were actually live here with us. Uh, he works for the cable operator that was uh, working with this with this particular customer. Uh, and I specifically, so this this uh, watcher wrote in, and he says, I specifically have a TC4400 modem, uh, which is a Doxus 3.1 modem. I noticed the other week I could no longer, he could no longer access the 192.168.100.1 page. For whatever, for whatever reason tonight, he decided to do a 30, 30, 30, hard reset on the modem. And I actually wanted to ask you what that was, Don, John, because I've not, I've not heard of a 303030 reset on a modem. Um, so are you, are you actually familiar with I, that? No, actually I'm not. <laughs> so you really did catch me off guard in that <laughs> so, Okay, he, he stumped <laughs> us both on that one. Uh, anyhow, he says uh, 30, 30. after he did the 3030 reset, uh, he was able to get access uh, to the, the data in the modem. Uh, but he, he said even before that, he was able to get access to the 192.168.100.1 colon 8080 page, which if no one's seen that page before, it's really kind of nice. It gives you access to the spectrum analysis page or the full band capture page of, of the cable modem. And not all modems support that, but more and more of the, of the DOCSIS 3.0 and DOCSIS 3.1 modems give you access to that. So it's, it's kind of like going into the diagnostics page of the modem. Uh, but if you add colon 8080 after, it lets you see all the RF signals that come into your into your home. So 
Correct. I, I, I even put a little presentation together a few years ago on accessing the full bandwidth capture capability. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is the modem has the 192.168.100.1 built-in web page, if you will, URL. But what happens when the modem fully registers? So when the modem fully registers, then the modem starts doing, you know, gets a, a, a private IP. It might be 24 dot something, whatever. And then your PC that's plugged into the modem gets a, a, a public routable address. It's no longer on, it might no longer be using a 192 address. So how does your PC access the 192 address? So there's plenty of times where I have taken a PC, plugged it into the modem, and I statically set my PC for 192.168.101.1 or 100.2 or whatever. Maybe it was 100.2, right? Just so I was on the same network as the 192.168.100.1. And then I was able to access that web page, the the 192.168.100.1 colon 8080. But I had to make sure that uh, in this case, I knew the modem, once it fully registered, the cable company might actually disengage or or disable that access. So I needed to figure out a way to have the modem not register. So, because the modem has built-in spectrum analysis, even if the modem's not online. That's the whole point of it. It's a built-in spectrum analyzer. So that 192.168.100.1 is always there, even when it's not registered. So you could use the modem as a piece of test equipment, but here's a case where I didn't want it to register at all. I didn't want it to lock onto the downstream. Um, Well, you know, if you don't plug the coax cable in the back, it's not going to register. Problem solved, man. I mean, you have to have the coax to get the RF. (laughs) (laughs) So how how do you block the primary channel? I mean, I think what I did, I ended up um, setting up my modem somehow as an Annex A modem. So Annex A is for Europe. Right, with the 8 megahertz channels. North America, so it never registered. Yeah. Well, so, so you know, this, this really folds into um, the person who originally wrote us the question with this issue is Jesse. And, and so this goes into the Jesse um, who wrote back to us after we did the original YouTube video, and I think this was episode 51. Uh, and he said, well, I saw your YouTube video. Thanks for mentioning my situation online. I'd like to provide some additional information and my update on the situation. And he said the attached photos of the tap, and he shows uh, it, it was a, I think we talked about this, it was a directional coupler that they had put on. Um, uh, he returned the Hytron modem to his ISP because it was not allowing him to see the downstream information. He got a Aris TM 1602A, and uh, it, which is a Doxus 3.0 modem that allowed him to see his signals. Uh, he removed the tap, but he's continuing to see T3 and T4 timeouts, which we've covered many times. Um, as a re- result, he purchased a few Holland attenuators um, at different dB levels. And he basically swapped those in and out, and he determined a 12 dB attenuator was able to increase uh, the upstream power level above 45 dB without throwing the downstream levels uh, out of whack. And uh, he attached a screenshot, but uh, he received a T3 timeout after the modem has been up and running for four days, five hours, and 14 minutes with a 12 dB Holen attenuator installed, which that's actually pretty decent in my opinion. 
Uh, he's, his internet connectivity is more stable with a 12 dB Holland attenuator. Uh, he doesn't know if this, this, this T3 timeout is something to be concerned about or not. Again, after four days, um, uh, he, he, I, he said, I suppose my next step is to reinstall the Aris SB8200 and see what the signal levels are. Please let me know your thoughts. So, you know, John, I think one T3 timeout in four days is, you know, not bad. It's probably some minor impairment, but I'd like to get your input on that. I mean, if, if uh, I assume it's a doctor's 3-0 modem and he's doing four-channel upstream bonding, knowing how Cisco works with our T4 multiplier, um, we're going to do a station maintenance to every upstream on that modem every 15 times 4 is 60 seconds. So each upstream will get a station maintenance every one minute. So if the CMTS says, I need you to change levels and it doesn't get a response back, it'll go into fast polling mode. Every time you go into fast polling mode and don't get a reply, the cable modem is going to clock a T3 timeout. So, I mean, if I have a little bit of upstream noise and I have three T3 timeouts every one minute, that could actually be acceptable. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really not that bad. So I could have a, 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 a ton. I want to say a swear word there. S ton. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a cable guy. Uh, and so I can have a lot of T3 timeouts that are just, it's the nature of the beast. I mean, the HFC plan is noisy. Now, if you have T4 timeouts, obviously the modem is going offline and re-registering. That's a bad thing. If you have 16 T3 timeouts in a row, the problem, the modem's going to get probably a T4 timeout and go offline and rescan. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we have a flat list in the CMTS show cable flat list. And if I have, uh, more T3s than, or in the flat list, it's called misses and hits. If I have more misses than I do have hits in my flat list, then that's a problem. It's upstream issues. It's timing issues. Um, but it sounds to me like, you know, he's getting some T3 timeouts. It's no big deal. Yeah. And I, I want to say kudos to Jesse. You know, Jesse, you did a fantastic job with going out and getting attenuators and really taking this problem into your own hands. You did a great job, man. Your motor. These are regular attenuators, well not now. step attenuators. What's that? So these are regular attenuators, not step attenuators. Yeah, well, they're Holland attenuators, so it looks like they're fixed attenuators. Um, and he, yeah. he said he was able to get his upstream transmit levels, as as we had sec- suggested, above forty dBmV, uh, but his downstream mm-hmm. was still within uh, what he said. He didn't say exactly what the level was, but they were within. Uh, you know, I'm imagining plus or minus ten dBmV. So. Yeah. That's awesome well, yeah. to see subscribers become so knowledgeable that they're able to uh, take care of their take care of the motors. <laughs> I do remember that now because we were looking at the level and we said, you know, for that level to be like that, it's it's got to be, you know, a directional coupler or backwards or it wasn't coax lost. It was some type of flat lost or it, it was something weird going on. I do sort of recall that. That was like a month and a half ago, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was after the show is when you were here. Yeah. So. So I have some interesting things in the news coming up here, um, and these. Uh, so the first one starts out as AT and T consumer 5G service goes live today, and this is this is uh, from a telecompetitor uh, on on the web. Uh, and the reason I'm really following these 5G rollouts is uh, an article that I did in this latest issue of Broadband Library magazine, which you can see on broadbandlibrary.com. Um, what's happening is is 
these telecom operators are promoting that they can they can tackle low latency for gaming with 5G. And at the same time, we say see that operators, cable operators, are saying, you know, 5G is not a threat. It's kind of off in the distance for tele, for the telecom operator's office to to uh, get it up and running. But you know, last month, T-Mobile said they lit up a whole bunch of uh, towns, and now AT&T is saying that they've uh, just lit up 10 markets with 5G, inclu- including uh, L.A., Pittsburgh, San Francisco, and San Jose. So these are these are not small towns. They're using the 850 megahertz um, spectrum, so you know spectrum that we're going to see interfering with our signals. Uh, they're using wider bandwidth and lower power range, so they're not covering as much area, but they're using bigger bandwidth. This is true 5G, not the uh, what AT&T had called their 5G evolution or 5GE, which is was actually pretty much just a little bit faster than 4G. And so now AT&T and T-Mobile are in the 5G game, and, and they're also talking about this competing with basically, uh, you know, cable operator service. And it's a threat to cable operators. We, we really do believe that. Uh, and they're also saying it's very low latency, so it's something they're promoting to gamers. Uh, now there's a, another article that came out in Light Reading, also talking about 5G, that AT&T execs hints that they're, even their 5G evolution, that, that lower 5GE that we're talking about, is faster than T-Mobile's true 5G. Um, and this is an interesting article because they've gone in and talked about, oh, how Ookla's speed test is showing that uh, their, you know, AT&T's lower 5GE is really, really fast and super awesome good. And, and so they're promoting this and going on and on. Uh, but when then you go to a yet another article and start reading about why, and, and this is by CNET, why flawed broadband speed tests have devastating consequences, this is, goes into how the Wall Street Journal did some reset, research into how, how everyone's sort of manipulating speed tests uh, and, you know, kind of cutting out those slower ones and stuff like that to say, hey, you know what, uh, these speed tests aren't really always necessarily true. So there's apparently been some federal, uh, some manipulation in the speed test that's gone all the way up to get the federal communication, uh, the FCC involved to say, wait a second, guys, uh, you got to be truthful about the speed test because what AT&T has apparently been saying uh, is, may not be exactly true. And so what this is all boiling down to is... Um, 5G is getting faster. It is, you know, they're they're getting up to speeds of uh, 500 megabits per second download plus. But, you know, you have to be careful with what we're actually seeing on the speed test side. And in, in summary of what all of this I'm rolling up to is AT&T and T-Mobile are getting really serious about 5G. They're promoting low latency with 5G. And I think it's something as an industry we have to be really, really serious about seeing because you know we do have low latency DOCSIS, we have low latency X-Hall, uh, but we have to be focused on rolling that out because it's really serious, and we're seeing competition from that. So I guess my comments or questions would be: I thought five G was going to be much higher in frequency. So you were saying they announced it was at eight fifty megahertz. Well, and and T-Mobile was doing it at six hundred megahertz. 
Really? So I, I was actually quite surprised in going through these articles how how lower in, how much lower in frequency because to your point I thought they were going to be going higher in frequency and they're not they're using lower yeah, frequency bands. Yeah, I thought higher frequency, smaller cell sites, right? Yeah, smaller microcells, uh, knowing that higher frequency couldn't go as far a distance, so they would went shorter distance. And and that's the thing so about using lower, lower frequencies frequency is we 4G, go. We can go longer distances, or they can go longer distances, and yeah. they can also penetrate through houses and walls um, better than what we initially thought. Yeah, I mean, lower frequency means higher wavelength. Yep. Or, yeah. So, but actually, higher frequency is a smaller wavelength, so that should be able to penetrate the walls better. Absolutely. Right. So, I think it's I think um, it's an interesting yeah. time, and I think it's important to, as an industry that we do keep an eye on what's happening in five G. I know some operators will be getting into five G as well, and and that's where you know it in 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 the history of cable, uh, we've had an interesting relationship with the telecom industry because the telecom industry really thought as an industry the cable industry would never be able to compete in voice over IP, and we really we really showed them wrong. Uh, we just have to be careful that the opposite doesn't happen now where the telecom industry comes in and, and really kicks her butt with 5G because we have a real opportunity to compete with 5G. It is an interesting, I don't know if it's a conundrum or not, but the, and I said this years ago when when I was at Secor Electronics and uh, I had the thought of you know running fiber as deep as possible and why not do... Uh, FTTW, fiber to the Wi-Fi hotspot. But the more we talk about wireless and open frequencies and and uh, more and more devices using those open frequencies, we would still like a wired connection into the home. Yep. So are we nervous that 5G can offer better speeds, but does it still give me a guarantee I'm not going to have interference from other 5G devices or... 4G devices or multi-path or I, I don't know. So that one's still up in the air. But as a consumer myself, I'm like, I'm never, and I've said this before, I'm hard set on my mobile phone now. I'm not going to get rid of my mobile phone. But if my mobile phone could offer me 100 megabit per second, because I'm not asking for a lot, I'm saying 100 meg, maybe 50 meg. And I could use it as a hotspot. I could see getting rid of one and not the other, meaning instead of just a cord cutter, I'd be a cable modem cutter. I would get rid of cable modem and cannibalize that and then just go to my mobile phone if that were the case. Assuming I had you know, multiple mobile phones or heck, for that matter, you might have an older mobile phone because you upgraded and you use the old one as a hotspot. So now your PCs are just talking to your mobile phone as a hotspot. So it, it is interesting. It's like, where does 5G come in? And But everything you hear now is all big cities. So unless you live in a big city, you're not going to get 5G out in the middle of nowhere, right? I think, I think to your point, rural areas will be really tough because um, the coverage is not going to be as great in, in rural areas. Um, so we have a couple questions coming in. Uh, one from our friend Rick. Uh, he says, is it going to be fast? or low latency at the lower frequencies where it could be a big threat to, to wired services like cable or fiber. And I, I think, you know, one of, one of the things that we've seen is that cable operators, and, and this was in my broadband library article, is that low latency is one of the things that is being promoted by 5G and fast 
is also being promoted by 5G. So it's both of those things. But the distance covered is not supposed to be nearly what 4G currently offers. Um, they are using the lower bandwidth. So this is um, uh, this came in from uh, Thomas. You know, he says, but uh, are they going to reach the speed at that low frequency in megahertz? And, and what I read in the articles is that they, even though they're, they're using lower frequency, they're using a much wider bandwidth. So by using a much yeah. wider bandwidth, they're achieving the same speeds that they would have at the at the higher frequencies. And and then uh, Brian Brian writes in, you know, it's all about the spectrum and how many transmitters you can deploy. And and that's I think that's the big point is in these cities where they're doing it, they're going to be putting up a lot of transmitters. Yes, yeah. I mean, just like we talk about service groups, like you, you talk about, oh, we get five hundred megabits per second. Is that five hundred megabits shared? in that service group and the service group is a cell site. So if one device is transmitting, receiving, it can get 500 meg. Yeah, that's great. But aren't we trying to push 10 gig that, that could be shared in a service group? I mean, that's the whole cable apps uh, mantra now is 10 gig down, right? 10 G um, because we know more and more people want one G or 500. So it, it is, I am kind of curious to see, you know, what is the per home or per device speed versus how much are we sharing? Yeah. You know, is it, uh, I don't know. You could have five devices in one house, right? Yeah. And I, and I think there's still a lot to be seen. And from some of the articles we read, you know, it was still like they're, they're, they're struggling with, well, they're not struggling with the technologies, but you know, even though like AT&T and T-Mobile say, oh, we're, we're seeing 500 megabits per second download, you'll see subscribers saying, well, we're actually only seeing 20 to 50 megabit per second download. So I think that it's still, there's still some, some improvements that need to be made in the technology. So we got to get out of this and get on to our, our review over the past uh, 20 years of Doxis. Um, Oh, we're seeing there's one more question before we go on. Uh, uh, so from Thomas, it says, wouldn't it make more sense for cable operators to deploy 5G? We have the infrastructure. And Thomas, you are spot on absolutely right. Um, so at Cable Tech Expo, I think we talked about a presentation that was put on by Shaw Communications, which is a cable operator in, in uh, North America. And they really, they really did a nice presentation about how they overlaid where they could put 5G access points, where their cable plant where it already was, and, and it really made sense. We have the power, we have the backhaul, and the cable plant already exists where the access, access points could already go to have a very good coverage of 5G. So, do you have anything on that, John? Otherwise, we'll get on our 2000 I mean, to 2019 and, and yeah. review. Yeah, the, 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 the mobile backhaul or X-Hall to, to retain the low latency of mobile over the non-guaranteed latency of a doxus plant. How do we do that? And that's where at the last expo we were showing that what we want to do is tie into this thing called bandwidth report where the, the mobile request grant cycle bypasses the DOCSIS request grant cycle. And the only way to do that is to have a CMTS or core that understands it um, and also talks to the mobile devices or mobile uh, head end equipment uh, to have this bandwidth report and kind of like bypass it. Meaning the, the cable modem is going to see information coming in from a, a mobile access point, um, like the a 5G uh, 
what do you call it? Uh, e node, G node B, I think it's called, yeah. the, the microcell. It's going to feed into the DOS 3.1 cable modem. And the cable modem usually does request grant cycle. But it's going to say, oh, this application or this service flow happens to be mobile backhaul. So uh, I'm not going to do the normal request grant cycle. It's kind of like, uh, think about UGS. Um, grant, 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 instead of request, grant, request, grant, request, grant. It's a request, then grant, 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 grant. Um, so I don't have to worry about request grants like old DOCSIS. So it's that part. And also, uh, I know certain vendor chipset supports DTP, which is DOCSIS timing protocol. And the whole purpose of a mobile phone is to be mobile. So if you're going to move from one microcell to another microcell, which is over, could be backhauled over DOCSIS network, I also have to be have timing synchronization between those. And I'm not going to put GPS on every single microcell. So having the modem support this DTP, DOCSIS timing protocol, helps us keep uh, the synchronization in within nanoseconds. And that's just for mobility purposes. Like if I'm walking around and moving from one, one site to another, like a handoff almost. Right. Yeah, so no, there's a lot of good stuff that came out of Expo on, on this uh, the BWR report and how they're doing all the handoffs and stuff. Um, so I, I think we're in a, we're in a prime area uh, as an industry to do 5G. We just got to get on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, moving on to the last two decades in review for DOCSIS and, and where we've been. And, and so, uh, you know, yes, DOCSIS was standardized in 1997, which is before the last 20 years. But let's face it, DOCSIS really didn't get into, you know, really take off until the year 2000. And I'll start with year 2000 itself. Uh, telcos really began facing, really began to, to feel a squeeze from from Doxis, and they started to advertise um, things DSL, and they came out with a first ad that I remember. I, I was living in California at the time, where they highlighted cable hogs, and uh, they talked about the internet usage capacity. And there was a, a video that came out that um, talked about these cable hogs. So I'm, uh, I'll get it up on a screen here. Uh, so some people may remember this video that was on Utah, YouTube. John, I don't know if you can see it. Um, I'm not seeing it, but at least for ours. You see this guy talking. Um, <laughs> so I love this part. Sorry if you can't see it, John. So they're talking about web hogs. Don't share the cable line. So this is from uh, Southwestern Bell DSL talking about how, you know, basically people are having slow internet. And uh, just cancel that there. So this was, you know, where we actually started seeing commercials coming out from telecom operators saying, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to get Doxis. You basically don't want to get a cable modem because it's going to be slow, and and all the sharing that was going on because this was a Doxis 1.0 days, and when things were just getting started. Um, no, no, what's funny about that that commercial was. Um, it was like neighbors getting mad at other neighbors and it was like cable hog. And, and the one guy went over and took a pair of uh, uh, wire cutters and cut the guy's cable. And what was funny about it was the guy's monitor went down. I'm like, how does cutting the coax cable make the power go off to his <laughs> monitor? <laughs> yep. I'm like, I call BS. <laughs> so that was 2000. You know, we're just getting started in the industry. 2001. Next year, Doxus 1.1 is released, 
And, and this was actually a really important spec. I, I don't think anyone gives Doxus 1.1 the credit it deserves, but the two major features we added were quality of service and BPI+. And I, I would argue that quality of service was one of the most important things we added because it gave us the ability to get into voice over IP. And I mentioned this early because I, I remember talking to a, a guy that was a marketing for a telecom operator, a marketing guy, and, and he said, you know, we just don't see the cable industry as a threat when it comes to voice over IP. And yeah, I, at that point, you were doing Vonage, right? They were doing best ever voice with Vonage, and Vonage was just kicking off the ground. They went IPO. Uh, and then we said, you know, instead of best ever voice, we could actually do a quality of service and give unsolicited grant service and guarantee less than two milliseconds of jitter uh, and voice quality was there. So more control. Yeah, and the and the big you know, one we had was a triple play, voice, video, yep. and data. You know, there was one other thing we had with one one. It was hardware related, and that's what we call the ATAP pre-equalization. Yeah, so that was added in Doctor That was only hardware issue. <laughs> yeah, that was the only hardware thing that was added. Yeah, and it made sense, right? One out of one one. It's not a big number jump, so it's more software. So you didn't have to buy a new CPE. Normally, the CPE, the customer premise equipment, the modems were all the same. Right. This is a software upgrade. So then one, one year later, 2002, we, the Doxis 2.0 was, uh, the spec was actually completed before that, but this is when we actually started to get um, production equipment um, for Doxis 2.0. And so what came with Doxis 2.0 was actually the speed increase that we really needed. The maximum upstream transmit speed went from 8 megabits per second to 27 megabits per second because now we had 64 qualm. And, and that was over a 3x increase from, from what we had. Uh, there were some other uh, enhancements that were um, arguably important, uh, such as ingress cancellation, dynamic interleave, and also SCDMA. Yeah, all upstream, right? There was nothing added on the downstream? Right. I don't think. Yep, pretty much the downstream stayed up. the same. Yeah. It was just changed upstream, but going from a one number to a two number, Doxus 2.0, was hardware. So now you needed new hardware. You need new uh, customer premise equipment, new modems, maybe new hardware in the CMTS. Yep. And, and uh, another company entered the inter industry. Well, I think uh, Motorola was big on SCDMA. Terion was very big on SCDMA. And uh, in 2003, Terion... Uh, they basically said, you know, uh, this is the make or break year for us in SCDMA. So they're, you know, uh, they said uh, for the year, Terion's revenue dropped 54% down from $279 million uh, in 2001 to $129 million in 2002. So they were basically saying this is our make and break year. Also, COM21 uh, closes. I, they were acquired by, uh, I think it was Eris, or it may not have been Eris at the time, but uh, Com 21 closed. I was in I, I was in uh, California at the time, so I spent a lot of time visiting Com 21. Um, so that was 2003. There was you know this is when the consolidations were starting to happen in the cable industry, the very beginning of it. So we have comments. Yeah, I didn't know if you had any. 2004, Cable Lab unveiled its yeah. plans for Doxis 3.0. And this was this new concept because it uh, was going to support IPv6, and it was going to introduce something called channel bonding. So 
they thought this would be a, a, a you know, just a new thing that would really help speeds. Yeah, I remember John Chapman, you know, he's our Cisco fellow engineer and uh, just been, you know, top of Doxus for a long time. And he implemented and designed a lot of this stuff. And when he first came out with the idea of Doxus 3.0, was, we called it wideband. And we still, to this day, use that term. To this day, we use that term in our CMCS, wideband interface, wideband. And then, then uh, he took it to Cable Labs and Motorola AirSkies got involved. And then they decided to call it downstream bonding. So the original term, wideband, was a Cisco term from John. And it, I think it was not MPEG-2 encapsulated like it is today. And they said, well, let's keep it MPEG-2 encapsulated. That way, the, the doxis and video could work in the same qualm if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. No one ever really did that. You know, all of our video qualms are still video qualms. Now, if we're doing anything in doxis, it's IP video. It's not MPEG-2 video. But to this day, uh, all doxis has been MPEG-2 in- encapsulated. Yeah, and it, I remember there was a lot of talk that we were going to have both uh, Doxis and video interleaved in the same QAM channel. But yeah, like you said, yeah. never happened. Like it's a good idea. Hearing, right? Now video is pretty much going away. Uh, so the year 2005, I couldn't find anything that really interesting happened in 2005 other than the fact that I moved to Atlanta and started working for Sunrise Telecom. Uh, so anything you can think of in 2005? Otherwise. You were employed. You didn't work. What's that? <laughs> you were employed. You didn't work. Okay. If you want to get to the details, you know, maybe so. Although I was heavily working on. On, on my BradyVolt.com blog at that time and writing a lot of articles on okay. how Doxis worked. So that, that was going on at the time. 2006, Doxis 3.0 specification was created. So that was, a, that was a pretty big, important year. 2007... Big Band retires the CUDA CMTS. You remember those CUDAs? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I was just thinking about those different uh, CMTS vendors. There was uh, River Delta. There was PBN, Pacific Broadband Networks, I think they were called. Juniper had one for a while. Uh, The CUDA, the Cornerstone. The C4, we said it was originally Cadent, Cadent, right? Yeah, that was Cadent Quarterstone, right? Yeah, that's right. So I think, yeah, they've all, they've all gone one way or another and ended up with like Aris or Cisco. <laughs> all been consolidations. Um, so yep. 2008, TI unveils a modem um, silicon that can bond up to eight channels. Imagine that, eight-channel bonding. Wow. Would I love to have one of those modems today? <laughs> 2009, Shaw Communications Incorporated becomes the first North American MSO to use DOCSIS 3.0 to deliver speeds up to 100 megabits per second. And put that in context, we're, we're looking at 1,000 megabits now. That's what we're yeah. achieving. But 100 time was quite a big feat, right? Yep. Absolutely. It was a struggle to do that. Um, some people still struggle to do that. 2010, the US the FCC urged US providers to make 100 megabit per second a standard bandwidth available to 100 million households before 2020. And and interesting when I was really reading this or, or, or researching what was kind of the major headlines for each year is there's still a lot of households that are you know not getting even 25 megabits per second today. 
So I don't I don't think we made this goal. 2011, the I mean, cable yeah. show. So you remember the cable show that used to exist? Yeah. That's in the U.S. And, yeah. That, what do we? Uh, the FCC is just in the U.S. How many households in the U.S.? 400 million, like, 300 million? Uh, we're shy of 400 million, I think. 350 million. Yeah. And they wanted probably 25% to be able to hit a 100 megabit per second. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we're there. So, cable show 2011. Comcast uses Cisco gear in one gig Doxis demo. So, we're doing one gig Doxis demos in 2011. I remember that. What we did is we took um, smoke and mirrors. Four, no, it and sort of was. I mean, it was four eight channel modems. So we basically bonded externally. So you weren't really doing you take it an eight channel modem. modem. Y'all know they didn't have silicon to do thirty two yeah, channel. Couldn't bond that many channels. So basically, you took four eight channel modems and then you bonded it externally. You know, you take the IP with an external router or a switch. Yeah. But it was just to prove that you could do more than eight. So 2012 is the first time that we started talking about CCAP. The cable's next generation access architecture was a hot show topic. 2013, I mean, that, that, Cable Lab shows off the DOCSIS 3.1's potential. So, so people use the term CCAP generically just to mean video and docs on the same box. Yeah, yeah. Even though we started talking about it years before that when we could run both video yeah. and docs over an MPEG channel. And yeah. do you remember what it was called before CCAP? No. Do you? It was called like CMAP. It was like CMAP. And then Time Warner, that was Comcast. And Time Warner had something called Caesar. And then they came together and said, all right, we're just going to combine the two and call it CCAP. Yeah. Because the whole idea was to try to, to organize or consolidate a box and make it generic enough and have standards around it that everyone could use. You know, in the end, and, it's still a CMTS to me. <laughs> I just can't get over it. Yeah. So... All right, we're up to 2014. Shipments of DOCSIS 3.0 powered consumer premise equipment are poised to reach 50 million units, accounting for 89% of all CP equipment. So basically 2014 was the year, you know, and not so long ago that uh, DOCSIS 3.0 was pretty much dominating the market. 2015, Broadcam, Broadcam, <laughs> Broadcom, Comcast prep for did gigabit cable service to begin in 2015 so it's a year we start to to get there 2016 and i'm curious about this uh, mediacom announced it would become the first major u.s cable company to fully transition to the doxis 3.1 platform were they the first mediacom who was this mediacom mediacom yeah it, it could have been you know how the smaller companies are very agile and nimble, and uh, sometimes they'll implement things a lot faster, less red tape. Now, did you mention when 3.1 was ratified? Because you mentioned the gig service. Was that gig service with the 32 by 8 modem, or was it 3.1? Um, yeah, you know, I didn't have that. Oh, yeah, 2016. 
Um, no, three one was done before that, but I, I didn't yeah. list that in here. So because you mentioned the gig service from Comcast in twenty fourteen. Yep. Or twenty fifteen. Gig service from Comcast was uh, well. There was the demo in twenty eleven, and then yeah, yeah. But yeah, as you said, that was when, really not for the gig. Yeah, the biggest yeah, because the biggest modem that was offered with Doctor's three O was a thirty two by eight, right? Thirty two downstream, eight upstream, and there was a couple customers, Cox and uh, maybe Rogers or Coachco in Canada, looking to offer one gig service from Doctor's three O. And we said, you know, you could do it. Um, you basically get about 1.2 gig from 32 channels, but most of the modems on the market only have one gig uh, Ethernet ports, a uh, gig Ethernet, and a lot of PCs don't have 10 gig either. So the most you'll get from a gig port is 960. Yeah. And, and they were fine with that. But I'm like, do you really want to sell a one gig service that only puts out 960 uh, from a 1.2 aggregate pipe? Uh, yeah, if you limit the number of people that sign up, then yeah, you could do it. You might be able to ring the bell, but we'd still like to rely on having an aggregate pipe 2x of what you're offering. So Doxus 3.1 was the way to go. Right. So 2017, Cable Labs released the full specification for um, Doxus 3.1, full duplex Doxus or FDX, which is we now call Doxus 4.0. And we just had a question come in saying, you know, well, what do we think about FDX and where it's heading? Um, and I would say, well, in 2017, we released the spec, and in 2018, we, uh, we basically said FDX is dead. <laughs> so, or it's, you know, it's not really being, you know, it, it's, it's still being speculatively adopted by Comcast. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, uh, it's one of those, you don't deploy technology for the sake of technology, and... One of the, I think one of the biggest hurdles was it definitely requires di distributed access architecture, remote buy, or some type of digital fiber. Uh, so once you want digital plus fiber, zero. then you can put Yeah, and it required N plus zero. Uh, so it made sense in uh, urban areas, but not rural America, where node plus three was still the economical way to do things. Uh, so then it was an idea of doing a node plus one where we do echo cancellation and maybe one amplifier, but maybe that still doesn't uh, add up. Meaning if I'm in a rural area, I might need to do node plus three. And, and you know, as well as I do, when you look at designs, one node plus three doesn't mean three amplifiers. The total amplifiers in that service group could easily be 20, right? Yeah, 20 those are all line extenders. Off all over the place. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so you have like 30... 30 line extenders in one node. So you still have a lot of noise funneling, and if you're trying to do echo cancellation, it, it just becomes uh, more cumbersome and difficult to do. And all purpose for FDX to open up the upstream. At right. this point, the supply and demand. There's no real huge demand to open up the upstream, um, but 85 megahertz has been in effect for a long time for DOS 3.0. So some people are uh, exploiting that 85 megahertz. Right. And 204 is in the 31 the three one spec. So 204 is possible if you can afford to eat into your downstream. So so our friend Brian Wilson, he's flabbergasted. He said, FDX, what? G pawn, E pawn is next. <laughs> <laughs> but we've been who the G pawn, E pawn guys have been saying that for the last 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> we've been working on doxes for the last 20 years. <laughs> 
So, so 2018, Doxus 4.0 is out of the bag. DAA is a hit. We talk about it all the time, but boy, deployment's slow. 2019, we got Doxus 4.0. Low latency Doxus is big, and DAA deployments are still slow. 2020, you know, who knows what's going to happen? What's your crystal ball say? <laughs> 
Yeah. So you could have thrown him. Well, you went through that. (laughs) I know exactly. So part of it is not just cost; it could be timing. How quickly can I get someone up and running? Right. And with three one, if everything's there, you just give them a three one modem and be done with it. Well, I think we've seen that benefit. We, you know, we just went through the last 20 years of DOCSIS, and it's been a gradual evolution starting with DOCSIS 1.0 up to 3.1 or DOCSIS 4.0 now. And it's enabled operators to keep using the same coax in the ground just by upgrading CMTSs, upgrading modems, and they can do that in a maintenance window. Yeah. Can't yeah, easily I mean, pull fiber in a maintenance building, window. They've been building HFC since 1948, right? And we're still utilizing some of that same stuff. Yeah. So I, I predict that I don't think FDX is going to be a huge success because it's technically complicated, very complicated. And, and I think keeping it simple is easier. I do, I do see operators now upgrading to 85 megahertz. I think that's the easiest migration. I think we'll see extended spectrum going to 1.2 megahertz or 1.2 gigahertz. So we have a, a higher downstream. Um, I think the simple solution is always the most elegant solution. Brian Wilson has a uh, yeah. uh, his plan where 2020 he's going to see DOCSIS 3.1 still rolling out and RPDs getting more deployments. Um, so I, I think that's very realistic too. I think I just don't think RPDs are going to be as massive a deployment as they're going to be because they're it's a very costly upgrade. So I think that's what we're going to see. Yeah, I mean, yeah, if if you take an analog node and you don't have to respace the housing and you can use existing housing and plop in an RPD with, you know, the open RPD initiative from any vendor um, would change out maybe the lid of the node. Um, that makes it very palatable, very easier to upgrade. And then we talk about low latency. I mean, a, a typical HFC is less than 20 kilometers of fiber. So even though you went to digital fiber, the, the latency really isn't that bad. It's when we start condensing hub sites by doing remote fi uh, shelves and con- condensing hub sites because we want to centralize our core. And now we're over 100 miles away. We could be 1,000 kilometers away. Well, that would have some delay to it. So then we have to like look at that and say, how do we get around that delay? And, and I told you one of those things, ideas is uh, – it's not just remote fi, but maybe it's uh, remote Mac fi, or it's remote fi with some upstream scheduling. You know, there's the flexible Mac architecture, FMA, uh, that can kind of move some of that information closer to the customer, closer to the remote fi. It's not just fi, it's not just physical layer. It might be some Mac as well, some scheduling. Yep, absolutely. So, what you know, we're just going to have to wait till 2020 to find out what happens, and that's, you know... I guess we'll talk about that when 2020 comes around. On January 1st? Yeah. <laughs> we get together on January 1st? <laughs> All right. Well, I think we covered everything, John. Thanks for your time. Thanks, everyone, for listening. If you liked what you saw, please hit that subscribe button. Hit that bell to get notified next time we come online in the next year. Everyone, have a good rest of the 2019, and we'll talk to you next year. Take care, all, and bye-bye.